Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus, increment 89. And it seems like we haven't gone too far in this epistle, though we have kind of fanned out in it a lot. And I think we're right on pace. Sometimes the Holy Spirit shows us things because this past year, 2020, has been called the year of today. That's what we called it in the beginning, and we're on a passage where today is right in the center of the passage. So it kind of says to me that even though we're only in our exegesis as far as 3.12 and 13, that we might just be on pace with the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we thank you that you have guided us and that the Holy Spirit of truth is guiding us into all the truth, and there is so much truth and so much light in Hebrews. We pray that you will grant us the grace to make the grace that comes from Hebrews our very own, that we may appropriate grace from your throne of grace constantly so that we can be of great benefit to those around us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Once again, Hebrews 3.12 through 14 this time. Watch out, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief that withdraws from the living God. Instead, keep encouraging one another every day as long as it's called today. We do that, too, in 2021, as we did in 2020. In order that no one of you is hardened by the deceptiveness of sin, for the proof that we've become companions of the Christ is that we hold firmly the reality until the end that we had at the beginning. That's my translation. Today is the day of the reign of the great king. He reigns from the city of the living God on the northern slopes of the heavenly Mount Zion. The paschal lamb who offered himself to God for us and who was slaughtered 1 Corinthians 5.7, Revelation 5.5, Hebrews 9.14. Slaughtered to take away the sin of the world. John 1.29, Hebrews 9.26. He reigns today. 1 Corinthians 15.27. We see him crowned with glory and honor. Today is the day of salvation. The acceptable time when the living God is our helper. That's 2 Corinthians 6.2 with a reference to Isaiah 49.8. It also correlates splendidly with Hebrews 13.6 with a reference to Psalm 118.6 or the Septuagint 117.6. So again, today is the day of salvation. Not just when it's offered, but when it's experienced. Today is the day of salvation and the acceptable time when the living God is our helper, when God's grace is available 
to be dispensed continually and freely from the throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 Now as Paul urged his readers in 2 Corinthians 6.1 not to receive this grace in vain, so the PT of Hebrews urges his readers to be on overwatch so that no one fails to appropriate. When I say appropriate, I mean receive for oneself and really for others the grace of God in order to live as citizens in the city of the great king. The Paschal Lamb, or the Passover Lamb as he's called, who was killed in 1 Corinthians 5-7, is also the king of kings who is reigning. 1 Corinthians 15-27. At the right hand of God. But besides reigning, it says he's waiting. Hebrews 10-13 says he's waiting. Having offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down, And he's waiting. He's waiting for the inevitable moment when all his enemies will have been placed under his feet. And we wait too. If he's waiting, we're his companions if we're waiting for the same event. If we are his companions, 314... We're waiting like he is, 10.13. We're waiting with an expectation that was awakened in us at the very beginning of our spiritual trek. We're waiting not for a possibility or even for a probability. We're waiting for an inevitability an event which is as inescapable as the omnipresent love of God. The omnipotent love of God. The omnipotent God of love. The inevitability that we're looking at and looking for is the victory of the power of love over the love of power. A victory that's being won even now in the hearts of a people of unfeigned faith in whom there is no remnant or trace of an evil heart of unbelief. We are those who are being conquered or have been conquered by the power of love. So we no longer lust for the love of power. We wait. As Galatians 5 5 says, we wait for the hope of righteousness. That means we wait for the realization of the expectation of God's great salvation. We wait because we have a hope that is engendered by the scriptures, a hope that overflows 
by the power of the Spirit. It's a hope that we communicate to others as it overflows. The Scriptures and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, enjoy a relationship of intimacy that is highlighted throughout Hebrews. When I finally translate Hebrews, I will put in bold italic all of the verses that are quoted from the Old Testament scriptures. There's a lot of bold print throughout Hebrews. The scriptures and the spirit enjoy a relationship of intimacy that is highlighted throughout this homily. It's highlighted as well throughout Romans. We came to Hebrews through Romans. Romans 15.4 says, and again, this is my translation from the Greek text, for everything that was written before, that's the scriptures, was written for our instruction to the end that through the endurance and through the encouragement imparted by the scriptures, we would have hope. And that means that we would all share the one hope of the universal glory of God. Romans 15, 13, in what is really the last verse of the main body of the epistle to the Romans, 14 and following, goes into a closure. But Romans 15, 13, Paul closes by saying, Now may God, the source of hope, completely fill you up with joy and peace in believing in believing, in believing there's joy and peace, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I can feel that the uh, emphasis will fall on attentiveness today. The more we're attentive to the Holy Spirit, the more of a certitude that hope becomes in us. The hope that we will be conformed into the image of God's Son. And that we will be part of a universal restoration. A universal regeneration. A regeneration of all things, Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. A summation of all things in Christ, Ephesians 1.10. A reconciliation of everything and every being in the heavens and on earth in Colossians 1.20. Now because the night is not over, and that's a poetic way of referring to this age, but let me tell you this, it's almost over. Paul said it's far spent. It means it's almost over. But because the night is not yet over, it's almost over. Romans 13, 11 and 12. Because it's not yet over, we're in the midst of an arena where two ages are clashing. I've said that many times. We've discovered that in Philippians. We've discovered it in John's gospel. In the apocalypse of John, we've rediscovered it, rediscovered it in Romans and again here. As we've learned lately with the help of the Hebrews homily, this arena that we find ourselves in is also a proving ground. It's an arena with an audience. The audience is described throughout Hebrews 11. 
They're cheering us on. But this arena is also a proving ground where our faith is tested and refined in order to be commended and praised. Well done, good and faithful servant. In order to be commended and praised at the universal appearance of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1, 7, and at that time unbelief will finally be seen as being so very wrong. Even though many things are being shaken off in this conflict of aeons, don't mistake what's being shaken off for your good with something being lost. Paul said, I count all things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Even though many things are being shaken off and evidently lost in this conflict of aeons, what remains is faith, hope, and love. Hope and faith Enjoy a relationship of intimacy, just like the Spirit and the Scriptures. Hope and faith enjoy a relationship of intimacy. So much so that Hebrews 11.1 1 describes faith as the substance of hoped-for things. That's how intimate faith and hope are united. Faith is the substance of hoped-for things and the assurance of their realization. Now, I look at the verses of the Scripture as there for a reason. I look at them as deployed there by a strategist, by God, for tactical reasons as well as strategic reasons. The, the Greek word deployed for substance there, faith being a substance, is hypostasis, H-U-P-O, S-T-A-S-I-S. Hypostasis. The reformed doctrine of hypostatic union comes from that word. The Greek says, Estin pistis elpizomenon hypostasis. Faith is actually identical to the present reality of the hoped-for things. That's why it says, let Jerusalem come into your mind. The hoped-for New Jerusalem already is present in the mind and the heart of the believer by faith. It's already there in the heart. So the Greek word deployed for substance is hypostasis. Now, why am I making such a big deal out of Hypostasis, because it's also found in Hebrews 1.3. But it's also found, more importantly for us, in 3.14. We are the companions of Christ. We prove ourselves and demonstrate ourselves to be his companions in this life because we hold the hypostasis that we had at the beginning until the end. We carry to the end or to the objective that which we, were be we began with. In the beginning, God awakened us to faith 
the substance of things hoped for. We carry that faith, that substance, that reality that we had at the beginning all the way to the end. And we reveal ourselves there, thereby to be the companions of Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ said, I have finished the work that you gave me to do on earth. If we're his companions, we'll be, we'll be doing the same thing. Carrying to the end that which we were given at the beginning. So among the words or meanings of hypostasis is the meaning reality. If the heart is filled with reality, there's no room for untruth, for unreality. Now I call it a tactical syntactical construct. It's a tactical, because we're in a battle here. We're in a war zone. We're in an arena and a proving ground. And so God tactically, syntactically constructs the scriptures. The tactical, syntactical construct in Hebrews 11.1 1 is a marvel in itself to look at in the Greek text. Estin, pistis, elpizomenon, hypostasis. And I'm sure I didn't pronounce that correctly. But it means faith is actually identical to the present reality of the hoped for things. The hoped for things are already in us, already realized by us. It's the presence of those things in the heart and the mind of the believer. It's the new Jerusalem already in the heart and mind. It's the heart and mind under the governance of the great king. Now, don't get the great king wrong. Don't get him wrong. He governs in the city of the great king, but he is also very present with the desperate and the dispossessed of this world, with the depressed and with the hurting, with Lazarus outside the gate of the rich man. And he's also with the rich man. in a different way, but there, nevertheless. Now, it's this faith that makes us the people of the Sermon on the Mount. Some people say the Sermon on the Mount isn't for us. It's very much for us. Some people say it's an unrealistic standard. It is unrealistic unless God enables you, empowers you, unless it's God in you unless it's a matter of faith. We are to be made. Faith makes us the people of the Sermon on the Mount, the people whom Jürgen Moltmann called the people of the Beatitudes. To be the people of the Beatitudes is to be the poor in spirit. Jesus opened the Beatitudes with that. When he opened his mouth, that's what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is not going to be the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit 
are the people who are not sufficient in themselves. Their sufficiency is in the Holy Spirit. The poor in spirit find their sufficiency in the Holy Spirit. Above all, and let me say this, to be, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? God doesn't fill with the Spirit people that are already full of their own self-sufficiency. Only the poor in spirit are filled with the Spirit who becomes their sufficiency. Spirit-filled is one of the most abused terms used in the modern sense of the word. The modern usage of the word is abusive in many cases. The poor in spirit are the people who are not sufficient in themselves at all. Their sufficiency is in the Holy Spirit. Above all, the kingdom of God is theirs. Not someday, but today. For as Romans 14, 17 says, the kingdom of God is going to be. No, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness is the saving action of God in Christ Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. Peace is the experience of harmonious rapport with God and with others on the fifth level of human consciousness. And joy is the actual elation of experiencing God's salvation. When David sinned, he didn't say to God, restore to me your salvation. He prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Joy is the elation of experiencing God's deliverance and his preservation of us from the tyranny of sin and its results. And Hebrews 12, 28 says, we are receiving, not will receive, we are receiving an immovable kingdom. And let us have and hold or take possession of, and I like the word appropriate in this case, grace. Let us have and hold grace that we may serve God acceptably, meaning as priests. The poor in spirit, and if we're going to be the people of the Beatitudes, as, as Moltmann called it, we're going to have to be first and foremost poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those whom James, right next door to Hebrews, calls the poor of this world, the poor of this cosmos, literally. We defined what this world is in our last message in increment 88, thanks to R.C. Trench and Bengal, and thanks to Kenneth Wiest. And I think that definition was found in his exegesis of Romans 12, too, incidentally. The people of the Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, are people who are poor with regard to this world. They're not like the sons of the age who are shrewd 
They're the sons of light. The poor in spirit are people who are poor with regard to this world, but rich with regard to future worlds where faith is meaningful. Because to be rich in faith, James 2.5, is to be rich with the things that are hoped for in future worlds where all the angels worship Jesus, where all the angels worship the man, Christ Jesus. So theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which is a circumlocution or a roundabout way of saying the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God today and forever because Jesus Christ, their king, is the same today and forever. So grow in grace and in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to whom belongs the dominion both now and forever. Amen, says Second Peter 3.18. Now, faith and hope enjoy and intimacy with love. For those who are poor with respect to this cosmos and who are rich in faith are those who love God. James 2.5 is chock full. It's got faith and love and hope implied. Faith and hope. Faith works by love in Christ Jesus, according to Galatians 5, 6. And faith and love flank hope on the flot of the soul, the forward line of troops, F-L-O-T. For the scripture says this hope is not just a deferred consolation. It's not just, oh, I hope for something out there and I know it's deferred for now and so until then I'll despair. No. This hope is not just a deferred consolation, says Romans 5.5. 5. It doesn't embarrassing, embarrass you for having it before it's fully realized. Because in the meantime, while we're waiting, we have the substance of hope for things in us. And on top of that, in the meantime, the love of God, which is God's self gift, God's gift of his own love is already being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us by the Father and the Son in order to grant us a foretaste of the age to come and of the universal glory to come. Romans 5, 5, Hebrews 6, 5. And again, the scripture says, these three abide, they remain when other things are shaken off, when other things are no more. These three, re, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Sometimes when things are taken away, there remains faith that they will be restored. David encouraged himself in the Lord that what was taken away by raiding terrorists, would be restored. And it was. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. These three abide. These three remain. This trio stays. Faith, hope, and love. 
And to reiterate what's in James 2.5, poor in this world, rich in faith, lovers of God. Poor in this world doesn't mean that you have to be poor in this world's goods or in terms of monetary or financial gain. It can mean that, but poor in this world means that you're not shrewd like the children of this age. Clever, a lover of power. You don't have a love of power. The power of love has overtaken the love of power. Imagine if that happened to all the politicians in Washington, D.C. A love of power being replaced all of a sudden by the power of love. What? What would happen? But I'm not looking at the politicians in Washington, D.C. I'm looking in the mirror at the man in the mirror. And I see myself, but more than that, I see in the mirror the word, the image of Jesus Christ into whom I'm being conformed, into whose image I'm being conformed. I see it in a glass darkly. I expect one day he'll tap me on the shoulder and I'll turn around to see his image perfectly clearly and see him face to face without social distance. In Jesus' own words, those who are poor in this world, rich in faith, lovers of God, in Jesus' own words, theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. A kingdom from the heavens is theirs now on the earth. They're citizens of heaven. The new Jerusalems come into their mind. As the PT says, theirs is the immovable kingdom. And as the angel who stood near Daniel in his heavenly vision called it an everlasting kingdom, Basileon Aeonion. In Daniel 7.27. This kingdom of God right now consists of power. Says 1 Corinthians 4.20. But it's the power of love. Not the love of power. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the power of the everlasting kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3, theirs is the power of love because they have relinquished their love of power. That's the poor in spirit. That's the people of the beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are poor in spirit are poor in themselves, but rich in the Holy Spirit, the spirit of faith in 2 Corinthians 4, 13. The spirit who incentivized the prophets, the patriarchs, the heroes of Hebrews 11. Don't strive to be rich in the goods of this world. Strive instead to be rich in faith, overflowing with hope and with the love of God. To be the spirits of justified persons made perfect in Hebrews 12.23b is to simply become the people of the Sermon on the Mount, especially of the Beatitudes. 
Now, like King Saul's house, which the scripture says was growing weaker as David grew stronger, 2 Samuel 3, 1, like Saul's house, which is a kingdom, which the scripture says was growing weaker as David grew stronger. Just like that, the present evil age is waning while the age of Messiah, the Son of God, is waxing. There's the waning and the waxing of the moon. When the moon is on the wane, it's getting smaller each night or the visible part of it smaller each night. When it's on the waxing phase, the moon is getting larger each night to fullness. David grew stronger just as this age, the kingdom age, the messianic age, the age of the son of David is waxing larger. The proof of this is found throughout the New Testament. But it's explicit in passages like Romans 13, 11 to 14, where Paul uses it poetically and says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Meaning the present evil age is almost over. It's almost over, kids. It's almost over. In fact, the night is passing away. The darkness is passing away, says 1 John 2, 8. The true light is already shining. The day is already dawning. The day is already dawning, the messianic age. And so the Romans fragment uses the image of a night nearly over and the day dawning. The Johannine declaration in 1 John 2.8 is of darkness even now passing away and the true light already shining. We might also use the metaphor of a waning and a waxing moon, as I said. All of these indicate inevitabilities. The inevitability of David's house replacing the house of Saul. The inevitability of a night ending and an endless day coming. The inevitability of the true light dispelling darkness. John declared it in John 1.5. The darkness was unable to overcome the light. The hope that we have is a certain hope. It's a sure hope. It's called an anchor for the soul in Hebrews 6.20 because our hope is Jesus himself who is present as our forerunner. And the word for forerunner is prodromos, another word for Jesus, another word that describes him, P-R-O-D-R-O. M-O-S, Pradramas, P-R-O-D-R-O-M-O-S, means forerunner. He is a forerunner in a region beyond the veil of the heavenly tabernacle. That Jesus is a forerunner for us, for us, is a picturesque indicator of divine promeity, of God being for us. It even says, Jesus, a forerunner for us, prodromos huper hemon, for us. Now, for us to act in faith today has a lot to do with four things, and we're building a doctrine of faith. One, it means to have unqualified confidence in the universal efficacy of the once and for all and never to be repeated self-sacrifice of Christ 
to put away sin. Once again, I'll say it. For us to act in faith and think in faith has a lot to do with four things. The first, having unqualified confidence in the universal efficacy of the once and for all and never to be repeated self-sacrifice of Christ who put away sin. Two, it means holding the unshakable conviction that Jesus is at the right side of the majesty above the heavens, having been risen from the dead and elevated to that position where he holds all authority in heaven and on earth. Third, cherishing the hope of eschatological salvation, which includes the restoration, rectification, and reconciliation of all things. And that means everything that's wrong will be set right. Some of you have had terrible wrongs done to you or to those whom you love. God will set it right. God will set it right. He overcomes evil with divine good, with a good that you and I can't even imagine. God will set it right. God will set things right. Our hope, our faith says so and believes it. And fourthly, it means treasuring trust in the living God through Jesus Christ, who moves all things in the universe and in history to a saving conclusion. And so it's a trust that he is faithful. He is able and willing to sustain and uphold us in this present world and in this present evilly affected aeon. Those are four things. There are many more we'll deal with down the road. Faith, in its essence, is obediential potency. Now, that's a word that's used by scholars ever since Augustine, probably, all the way through Thomas Aquinas, up to Lonergan. Obediential potency, that's O-B-E-D-I-E-N-T-I-A-L, potency. Faith is an obediential potency. The way I'm using the term is that it's a gifted intention to obey God. To listen attentively, attentively, when we hear his voice in the scripture. And to be intelligent by letting the mind of Christ be in us. To be reasonable by offering our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, Romans 12.1, it means to be responsible based on insights, judgments, deliberation, and decisions to act on those decisions in love. That's what faith is. Now as we move to a close in this increment 89, in this tiny contribution to the exegesis of Hebrews, the 89th, we say this. There are five transcendental precepts. We call them TPs. TPs. There are five transcendent or transcendental precepts. These five Transcendental precepts 
correlate with five levels of intentional human consciousness. They are related. We've talked about five levels of intentional rational human consciousness. We've talked about five TPs, transcendental precepts, or precepts of self-transcendence for higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit. They are, and we've gone through these many times in many different series in the past. Be attentive is the first. Be intelligent. Be reasonable. Be responsible. Be in love. These five transcendent precepts are functional in the levels of consciousness, while being in love on the fourth and fifth levels. Being in love is on the fourth and fifth levels. Philadelphia, or we could say Philadelphia, not the city, But brotherly and sisterly love, Hebrews 13.1, is on the fifth level along with agape love. The fifth level of human consciousness. Second Peter 1.7 takes us through, really 5, five through 7 takes, takes us through the five levels in an unusual way. But on the fourth and fifth level, with emphasis on the fifth level, there is Philadelphia or brotherly sisterly love and agape love on the fifth level because it involves an intersubjectivity or an interpersonal expression of values and virtue. Now, attentiveness, even vigilance, be vigilant, alert, for your adversary the devil is roaming about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8. Attentiveness, even vigilance, is required on all five levels. It's functional as we attend to what we see, hear, taste, touch. Attentiveness is sublated on the level of inquiry and insight as it attends to questions and answers leading to insights. Attentiveness is further sublated on the level of reflection, where one attends to contemplation, to gathering of evidence, etc. It is sublated or integrated again on the fourth level, where one attends to deliberation and decision. And finally, it's integrated again by love, where attentiveness is turned to the objects of the love that was poured out into the heart on the fourth level of consciousness by the Holy Spirit, God's permanent gift to us in Romans 5.5. 5. Attentiveness is always urged and always pertinent on all levels. For that reason, when it says we see Jesus, we ought always keep our eyes straight ahead on him and fix our eyes on him, the eyes of our heart, 
and fix our eyes on the future that we have in him and because of him. These are the eyes of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it's the assurance of them. It's the external proof in the scriptures and the internal conviction in our hearts and minds by the Holy Spirit. I like what the King James Version and the Septuagint says in Proverbs 4.25. Keep your eyes right on. The idea is that the eyes of our hearts stay fixed on Jesus. This is essentially what Hebrews 12.1 says. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith. That's the key for endurance in 12.1-3. It's the key for perseverance toward the mark that indicates the reward that is completion in him, maturation, fullness, conformity to the standard of what human maturity is. Conformity, therefore, to the very image of God, which is the man, Christ Jesus. So, Father, we thank you that unlike Moses, who wore a mask, we with open face gaze as in a mirror at the glory of God, at the image of Jesus Christ, and we are being changed into that same image from one degree of glory by the, to another and that not of ourselves, for we are poor in spirit. We are changed into that image by the Lord, the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is the liberty of a transformation without human travail. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.